welcome to my office. Woo. Well, when I started this podcast back in early 2021, I knew that I wanted to bring some really great conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to you that would really help you to excel, to share with you some of the mechanics of high performance, success and even failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. And looking back, we had some incredible moments together. But today's episode is a special recap of a few of those highlights from season one of Welcome to My Office. So I hope you'll take the time to listen and maybe even watch and remember some key takeaways, some really awesome life stories, even some laughs that these powerful leaders shared. Also, be sure to check out my website because we are going to have a complete list of all the podcasts, some show notes from all of the episodes that we had this season, and there might even be in some there that you might want to listen to again or watch or share with a friend, your boss, or even a couple of your teammates. So go to carrielorenz.com, look up podcast and look for your favorite podcast episodes, and then just get after it. I also want to share one more thing with you before we launch into this special recap. We are going to be launching season two of the podcast in January, and I'm really excited to extend this content further from not only what we built upon this year, but launching into amazing next season. So these are going to include some video episodes that you're going to be able to find on my YouTube channel. I know sometimes it's fun to watch the conversation and even those shenanigans and then write down or jot down those lessons learned. So make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple iTunes, and even some of my social channels so that you will be the first to know when season two drops. Now on to today's special recap episode. Today, we are talking with my great friend, Allison Levine. Allison, hello and welcome to my office. So as you know, I'm very passionate about the topic of leadership and how do you get people? How do you motivate people to achieve more than they ever thought possible? And there's so many different ways to do that. But I hope that by sharing my story with people, that it will inspire them to push themselves a little bit harder to go a little bit further and to be less afraid of taking risks and less afraid of failure. So I focus on the topic of leading teams in extreme environments. So that's what I do. I share my message, whether it's on stage at West Point, you know, through my book or through social media, which isn't very often, I'll admit, but, um, <laughs> but that's what I do. And it all is based on the lessons I learned while climbing the world's highest peaks, as you mentioned, the seven summits and skiing to both the North and the South Pole, because I've spent so much time in these remote extreme environments. I've learned so many incredible lessons on leadership, dealing with a changing environment and overcoming obstacles. I've learned lessons in those environments that I could not learn in a, a traditional classroom or in, you know, in at my desk in corporate America. So I had my first surgery when I was 17. Unfortunately, it was not successful. I had another one I, when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. It was this total light bulb moment where I thought, okay, hang on. 
If I want to know what it's like to be this explorer, Reinhold Messner, and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go drag that damn sled across the ice instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers and these remote mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the remote mountains instead of just watching films about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. So I'm 55 now and I've been climbing ever since. And while it wasn't a difficult mountain, I'll tell you why that climb was life-changing for me. It was the first time I ever felt like I was going to quit. It was summit day. The wind was blowing. I was feeling the altitude. I felt like someone had punched me in the stomach. I felt like I was going to puke. I had a banging headache. And I thought, I cannot do this. I'm going to have to go down. But before I go down, I'm just going to take a couple more steps and then I'm going to turn around. So I took a couple of steps and then I thought, okay, well, I'm definitely going to turn around because I know I can't do this. But before I do, I'm just going to take a couple more steps. And I took couple more steps. All right, I'm just going to walk over to that rock and see what the view is like over there because I know I'm going to turn around, but before I do, just just a few more steps. Well, I kept doing that and eventually I found myself on the summit of Kilimanjaro. And it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized that the way you get to the top of any mountain is you just put one foot in front of the other. And you don't need to worry about being the fastest or being the strongest or being the best. You just have to be the most relentless. That is how you get to the top of every mountain. And that lesson I learned on Kilimanjaro, that first mountain, is what got me to the top of every mountain I climbed after that. Sometimes you can be the best teammate and you've paid attention to detail and you've done everything, air quotes, right. And yet, things still don't go your way. Right. So... How do you bounce back? And I have an answer in my mind, but what would you say then if I ask you how you bounce back and how do you continue to go on and put that one foot in front of the other? What do you think is the number one trait that you see most high performers? First of all, that sense of grit, right? Of just knowing mm -hmm. that you can go through something tough and you can keep going. So for me, it's thinking back. Thinking back to that time on Kilimanjaro where I thought I couldn't keep going. I thought I was gonna have to quit, but I kept going then. So I have this voice in my head that says, look, you did it then so you can do it now. And that voice also says, remember, pain is temporary. Pain and discomfort are temporary. And sometimes it's through the struggle that we really learn and grow. You have to go through pain. You have to go through a struggle sometimes to really experience the growth that you need to propel you forward. So just realizing discomfort is temporary. Discomfort's not gonna kill me. Discomfort does not kill you. You can keep going. So that's, that's one thing. Today we have joining us Marine Corps Brigadier General Len Anderson. Nothing really ever came easy to me, you know, growing up. It wasn't like I was number one in my class. I wasn't, uh, you know, looked at all for any type of sports scholarships at college. I certainly knew a lot from my grandfather and my dad about hard work. Um, they they both worked hard, and and my dad still you know works pretty hard even in, ret in retirement. But I I think just learning that 
as a young uh, teenager and continuing the grind, even through college, as we all probably experienced as freshmen, it was close. It was pretty hairy. Didn't know if I was going to make it through college and uh, ended up making it through college, get to flight school. And holy cow, this is a whole new thing. Never flew an airplane before. Like you said, I first time was at Whiting Field, T-34, you know, feet on the pedals shaking because I can hardly hold the brakes because I'm scared out of my mind. And I'm about to fly an airplane, you know, obviously with an instructor in the back, but and wondering how did I get here? To a point of almost failing when I was in Kingsville and flying jets and and I received the dreaded down, you know, for my landings prior to my safe for solo check. And I thought it was over again, you know, and was able to 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 get another chance and and it and it worked out. So it wasn't like it was to where I was actually to get into an F-18 was completely just successful and rolled out in front of me. And it always happened and, and worked. I will say later on, though, once I knew what was needed, you know, at the squadron level and flying, I just put everything I had to study in the tactics, studying the airplane. I knew everything I could possibly get from the books. It was just a matter of could I fly the airplane and then just dedicate everything, my time in the airplane to learning how to best do that. And and, uh, yeah, it turned out I could fly an airplane and it worked out. Uh, as I approached the Blue Angels thing, I'll go back to that, I guess, to flight school. I had never seen the Blue Angels either, Carrie. Didn't even know what they were. That's crazy. Uh, I was in flight school. Uh, yep, yeah, it is crazy. I was in flight schools in Pensacola, Florida, where we train all Navy and Marine aviators. And we were on the beach, and these blue airplanes flew by and didn't. And I was like, what is this? What is, you know, what is this nonsense? And how do you get, how do you get to do yeah. that? <laughs> Uh, so it was kind of, in, you know, the seed in the back of my head. And when it came time to apply and, and, and think about joining the Blue Angels, it was one of those things, Carrie, you talk about the humility and, you know, you really want to be humble in the ready room. You know, you're not trying to, con- you know, conversely to what you see in movies like Top Gun, you, you're really trying to be part of the team. Just, just do your work, not be the not be the rooster, you know, of the, of the ready room. So when you apply to the blue angels, you can imagine some of the, the spears that start coming your way. And yeah, it worked out. I, I don't know how to explain all of it here. I think there is a, a little bit of an, of an aspect of, of luck to that, but I've never quit. I've never given up on something that I wanted to do. It wasn't really until I made the blue angels and we started thinking, and I started thinking about visualization not just in what we fly, but what you want to do. Uh, and I'm not saying repeating a mantra will make things happen for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just continued work. The, the problem with this domain is that it's open to anybody. Anybody, mm-hmm. you know, with a laptop right now that has uh, access to the internet can find weaknesses. I mean, you look at some of the recent exploitations, and, and I mean, it, some of these windows systems are old. Like they, they have never, they don't pay for upgrades, right? Mm-hmm. As an example, yep. you don't pay for the licenses in there. That is just asking for that type of insurance. So I say that as one thing, just the investment in cybersecurity. I think in, in, in some ways people are coming around now, but there wasn't a lot of investment. And, and the, the, the problem with our overall nation cybersecurity is that we want a free and open internet. We want 
free speech. We want First Amendment. We don't have a big switch that's going to sh- turn off this firewall to protect our our nation you know, like we do with in other domains, right? We wouldn't let these same type mm-hmm. of things happen mm-hmm. in the land and sea and air domains, but people having... Uh, you know, free and open internet, that's that's what we want in this country. There's a balance here where we're always going to have sort of a, I don't want to say we're going to be fighting on our heels, but we certainly have to be a little bit more conscious of what we need to be doing personally. Who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? Well, I think of my dad as a mentor, uh. just in life, like overall, um, hard work, but he's also very compassionate. He has a lot of empathy for people that have steered off the right path. He, you know, he worked very hard and then he transitioned to being involved with a low security prison and working with prisoners and talking about recidivism and just the passion that he had for that and the empathy that he could take for somebody that isn't perfect. And I have to realize that not everybody's perfect. Mm. What I experience in life, what I've experienced in the pandemic is completely different what somebody else might have experienced. I, I, I really try to take his um, guidance of not judging and just being considerate of other, of other people as much as I can. Yeah, that's my dad. Nate Boyer leads a remarkable life. Nate, welcome to my office. I didn't join the military right away. It took uh, still a couple more years uh, before I eventually did, but I started backpacking. I'd save my money up and backpack and travel overseas. That eventually took me to uh, the Darfur, uh, which is a region in Sudan uh, where there was a, a genocide that had been going on for quite some time. And I wanted to volunteer and help out. I flew myself over there and, and did that. And um, it was through that trip that I gained not only my patriotism, but knew that Serving my country was going to be the next step for me. You know, I ended up volunteering there for a couple of months, and and yeah, the, the perspective I, I gained was was very different than I expected as well. Because just the, the amount of joy that a lot of these people experienced every day, who had absolutely nothing, you know, most of those kids had lost their fathers, um, but they were content with you know the one meal that they got and having clean water, and you know, an opportunity to kick a soccer ball around for a little bit was amazing, you know, just to, to not hear people complain about every little thing, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. a very American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, uh, was, was, was incredible. And it made me want to fight for people like that. So what was that process like? Because I think too often, you know, we hear these, uh, these stories of people's journeys of, of maybe being a special forces operator or doing something that feels so elusive or so out of reach for like we mere mortals. So what's that process like? Because you didn't just join the army, you became a Green Beret, which is pretty special. I think the biggest change for me was honestly through basic training, which is the lowest level of training you're going to get compared to the rest of the stuff you're going to do. But it definitely whipped me into to shape more mentally than physically. But I, I was driven because I, I'm not the quitting type. And I knew that if I just applied myself that I might not make it, but it wasn't going to be up to me. It was going to be up to the universe, whether I didn't make it or not. You know, I committed to that, like just in basic training alone. I remember, um, every time I went to chow, for instance, before and after I did like X number of push-ups, sit-ups and pull-ups. If we had any free time uh, at all, I would like put my body armor on and go to the track outside of the barracks and just 
like one day I did like a mile of lunges, which was insane. And it, it was terrible. An eighth of a mile into it, I could barely walk, but I just kept going and I kept going and kept going. Um, because I wanted to just, I wanted to complete tasks. I wasn't sure that I could do. Do you know what I mean? I, I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, set the bar high, higher than I thought was possible. And then if I could get through those things, not only did I start to gain faith in, in what my physical body was capable of, but I knew that I just mentally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's how I started to toughen up. And I completely changed the way that I looked and felt about myself just in those 14 weeks. And, uh, and then went off to, to airborne school and pre-selection and, and did really well. I was definitely not the smartest guy. Uh, a lot of times I just went hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction, but I always went hundred <laughs> miles an hour. So, uh, With enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. But yeah, no, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. Yeah. Post-traumatic growth is something that I understand because I'm aware personally that I wouldn't have achieved half the things I achieved if I didn't have a great amount of failure or loss in some way, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, I think one of the bigger issues (laughs) that a lot of us face as, uh, as veterans and and athletes is this, this, uh, you know, like a lack of traumatic stress, you know, missing sort of that high octane lifestyle where it's like things are, well, at least in the military, things are life and death and, you know, the stakes are very, very high, you know, but also, yeah, like it's, I mean, I, I, I was speaking about this with somebody yesterday, you know, when we talk about post-traumatic stress, like it is interesting to me that that, that, that it is called a disorder, you know, because, you know, for what you're experiencing and what you're going through, if you didn't have some reaction to that and maybe even a, a, a negative one, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, that's not normal. Like it, it'd be very mm-hmm. odd for somebody to, you know, experience death at that level and not, uh, and not have it affect them, you know, in the, in the, in the form of, you know, of, of, of dreams or flashbacks or, or sounds that sort of make you jump or whatever you want to call it. That's a very normal thing. You know, that is like, that's what should happen. Um, that's right. Yeah. We're talking about that more now and like, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's just a matter of like processing it and understanding it and like being okay with it and knowing that this is totally normal. Not, not that you have a disorder because you're acting in this manner. Dr. Amy Cuddy, welcome to my office. Thank you. I am so glad to be here with you. What is a power pose? Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. It's it, I, Sometimes I'm, I'm actually sorry that I use the term power pose because it might be, it, it's it's too cute. It's too sticky. And people, people think only of, you know, standing like Wonder Woman with your hands on your hips and your feet apart. But I'd say more generally, the idea is that it's an expansive physical posture, right? So if you imagine what people do when they run across the finish line in first place, or when at really any sporting event, you know, and they throw their arms up in the air in the victory pose, they puff out their chest, they lift their chins, that's a power pose. So it's the kind of expansive posture that people adopt when they feel powerful. So what does psychology tell us about uh, the relationship between these postures and power? Uh, Well, I mean, it's interesting because they are related in both directions, meaning when people feel powerful, they expand, they adopt these, you know, expansive victory poses or, you know, the hands on the hips. But it's also the case that when people adopt these postures, it causes them to feel more powerful. 
So mm. it, it works in both directions. So mm -hmm. you know, when you cross the finish line, yes, you throw your arms up in the air because when you cross the finish line in first place, I should say, um, you throw your arms up in the air because you are feeling very powerful in that moment, right? And that's true in, in every culture in which it's been studied. So it's been studied in dozens of cultures by a researcher named Jessica Tracy at the University of British Columbia, who has really demonstrated that expanding our bodies is a universal expression of power as a kind of, if you think of it as an emotional state, right? As opposed to a fixed status. The power is also, is not just a fixed status, like in a hierarchy, it's also an emotional state. We can feel more or less powerful regardless of our, of our hierarchical status. So when we feel powerful, we do those things, but when we, we expand, but when we expand, it also makes us feel powerful. And that applies not just to, you know, throwing your arms up in the air in the victory pose, or standing with your hands on your hips, but also just more subtle things like the difference between mm -hmm. slouching and neutral. If you're watching basketball or or soccer, football, you know, watching the interactions among players on the bench is really interesting because there's always sort of an unofficial team leader who may or may not also be the official team leader, but the unofficial team leader, the person who's the most respected by the other members, that person's body language is so important, right? So, and I've worked with a lot of college coaches on this issue. How do you train that person? Because their body language is not just affecting how they feel, it's also affecting how their teammates feel, right? So the problem is when you have an athlete who's really skillful, really good, everyone looks up to them, but they don't deal well non-verbally with tiny failures right so if you think of like a basketball game it has it's it's every basketball game for both teams is a series of of wins and failures wins and failures right it's not just the end score you're making shots and missing shots so what happens when you miss a shot what's your body language and if the leader looks defeated every time there's a, a small failure and the teammates are looking to that leader they're adopting that same sense of temporary powerlessness that takes them out of the game. It's interesting to me because, again, I'm internalizing and thinking about in my experience in aviation and certainly as being a former fighter pilot, uh, you know, we weren't born uh, with those magical abilities to prioritize tasks or manage stress really well in a high pressure environment and similar to any other high performers I've worked with again, whether that's Olympic athletes or high performing executives, every single one of those people have learned the skills and the tools and paired them with both confidence and competence mm -hmm. necessary to do those things. And that comes through relentless preparation and training. So it's, you know, how do you, how do you access that? How do you find that ability so that when you're under pressure, when you're under stress, you can trust yourself that you'll be able to figure it out. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's, it's interesting to think about also that, that learning to be present is part of your your preparation and your training, mm -hmm. right? It's not, it's not secondary. You know, it's, it should be, it should be thought of as 
as a sort of a primary skill, right? So, right. so right. you can't, because you can't reveal your competence. You literally, you cannot function at your highest if you can't be present. And, you know, lots of research shows that when people, and I, here I'm going to tie power and presence together, when people feel powerless, it activates what, what psychologists call the behavioral inhibition system. And think of it as sort of your nervous system telling you that you're not in a safe situation, that you're being threatened, that there's imminent threat, and that you you better shut down or get the heck out of there. So basically, when we feel powerless, it activates the fight, faint, or flee response. We feel like we're being chased by a predator, and so our, our body and mind start to coordinate to get us out of there. And that's not really very useful when you're going into a work meeting, right? Like if you're actually being chased by a tiger, probably that's the right response. But it's almost like sort of our brains haven't caught up with the reality of our lives and don't realize that the anxiety that we're experiencing is not because we're about to be chased by a tiger, but because we're feeling afraid of being judged negatively by other humans. Mm -hmm. We're not actually at, at risk of dying. We are at risk of losing a deal or not getting the job or getting turned down when we ask someone out on a date or something like that. Joining me today is one of America's most respected authorities on security and intelligence operations. Teresa, welcome to my office. Hey, I love what you've done with the place. Thanks for having me. Teresa, how, how do you even define cybersecurity? Hmm. That is a great question, Carrie. And um, I mean, you, you really kind of framed sort of the situation that we have. And, you know, I, I almost want to answer it with a question, which is, what is not cybersecurity? I mean, it's almost every organization now is truly a technology organization that happens to do what they do for a living. Um, almost everything requires some level of technology, even a master craftsman working with their hands. Most likely they double check their measurements with some type of a computer. They most likely had their customers find them, not just through word of mouth, but through a computer. And so cybersecurity has really evolved over the years and it'll probably be renamed something um, in the future. Maybe it'll be digital security. I'm not sure. But when you think about it and you think about it in both business and personal terms, in personal terms, Carrie, you know, a lot of people think, you know, I spent a lot of money on my smartphone. Shouldn't it just be secure? And I spent a lot of money on, you know, this particular device Shouldn't that home Internet of Things device be secure? And then go to corporate America or any you know, nonprofit or government organization, and they're buying technology that's incredibly expensive. And shouldn't they also assume that it's secure? And the challenge is that it's not. Um, so we really have to revisit and rethink what we call cybersecurity, because it really needs to be much more built into the human design and the experience that the human has. You know, right now it feels very bolted on. I mean, I don't know about you, Carrie, but do you love strong passwords? Like if I told you I was going to 
make everything you access a 20 character strong password that would expire every 30 days, would you still be my friend? I, you probably wouldn't. What do you think it's going to take to pique people's curiosity so that individually we each start taking better ownership of protecting all of us as a whole? Yeah, no, I, you, you bring up a great point and, you know, it, it's somewhat of a complicated response, but I always like to kind of go back to something that people can see and touch, which is, you know, kind of the concept of physical security. And so, for example, we know that we have first responders when there's emergencies. We know that we have law enforcement for both prevention and responding to um, incidents that occur in sort of a physical sense. We may see uh, building security. Uh, we may see cameras. We may see different things that sort of provide a level of monitoring. So all of those things in the physical sense exist. But then on top of that, we were always taught, you know, you don't want to make yourself a victim. So for example, if you do catch on fire, stop, drop, and roll was something that I was taught. Mm -hmm. um, if there is an earthquake, um, you know, get out, you know, get into a doorway or get under a desk or get somewhere where things that are falling around you that you can at least be sheltered from. And the same thing of, you know, you don't want to be that next target because you're a distracted person walking to your car, fumbling for your keys, talking on your phone. And so there's certain things that are our responsibility, but then there are other things that are the responsibility of, you know, either an organization, a company, law enforcement, or first responders. We have to move that model that we all understand in the physical sense over to our digital lives. And we haven't really done that yet, Carrie. Somewhere in her home, she's got an Olympic gold medal and two silver medals hanging around along with dozens of other awards and accolades she's received in her hockey career and over her life. Hillary, welcome to my office. Thank you. Happy to be here. I, I knew I was, you know, good. I didn't know. But when I say that, I meant, I mean that I wanted to go to the Olympics, right? Like I knew I was good, but I didn't know if I was good enough to get there, but that's where I wanted to go. And so that was always top of mind when I was sort of navigating the next steps. And it's crazy to look back because I was actually looking at a couple schools that the hockey programs weren't as strong and they weren't known for hockey. They were more known for sailing around the world and tagging sea turtles. And that interests me deeply. Right. So I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, so um, making that decision to have a, a the foundation of education that combined with hockey was, you know, a big one. But I was ready to make the jump and go forward. The crazy thing was, is so I was on the national team for a full year when I was in high school. And then the first tournament I was eligible to, while at Wisconsin, go play for the U.S. team, I got cut. And I was just like absolutely devastated beside myself and just like watching all my teammates leave to go play um, a Four Nations at the time. I took it super personally. And I was just like, I, sh I should be on that roster. Like, what am I not doing right what are the areas that I need to improve on to make sure that I'm never, ever left off a roster again? And so that was, I think it was a really good moment for me because it really sort of humbled me a bit. Not that I was, you know, 
crazy with an ego or anything, but it was a, it was a restarter of the fire to sort of reignite everything. Mm. Like, okay, you know, none of these minutes are ever guaranteed. And we know that signing up, but that was like a, okay, you know, all this pressure. And now I feel a little bit embarrassed and it was, it was good. Interesting. Cause you talk about behavior and how, you know, men get in a room and they take up the room and we sort of shrink back and mm. we're always more reserved and, mm-hmm. um, sort of a little bit delicate how we express ourselves in many ways. And that was, that was sort of that pivotal moment. That's like, Oh no, like if you want to be a competitor, be a competitor, however that looks like. And she really brought the best out of everybody. So do you find yourself doing that now? If you, if you walk into the locker room and you know, cause you've got a few more years under your belt when you can <laughs> sense that that energy isn't there, you just like, Oh man, uh, no, no. We're yeah. There's different things. Time right? to light and it I- up. Yeah, I think that people respond differently. And that's that's what's so mm-hmm. interesting to me about a team sport, right? Is you could do a whole study on people um, and know that you could get in someone's face and they would take it extremely well. And you can get in someone else's face and it's just going to mm-hmm. minimize them to the smallest thing. And that's what you don't want, right? So it's mm-hmm. a really delicate balance. And obviously if we're flat and we're just playing like garbage, like there's things to be said, right? Um, and that's respectable. But to be able to have this chemistry and relationship with your teammates to communicate and to make sure that you both are communicating on the same channel to make sure that you're bringing out the best in one another is something that um, is fascinating. And, and it, it's what makes a team win. It's that, it's that little 1%. To be honest, I think just because we've got such a great culture within our room for the national team, it just always felt like the Olympics, so to speak. And granted, we weren't at the actual Olympic tournament, but the expectation is always there. The responsibility was always there. So we, we spent some years to create that culture. But I think that's that was unique about the U.S. team is because you just you show up and you're you need to perform and mm-hmm. all the work that you've done away from the rink shows. So that was easy. in in that standpoint, I think coming back from the Olympics was harder because you just had this amazing experience with a talent pool that's that much higher. And then you're coming back to college. And I think that's, that's what speaks volume about the national team is it's, it's that much higher, um, Mm -hmm. especially at the time. And, you know, we were winning national championships at college, so we're the best too. So, um, really being able to have patience and continue to be self-motivated to develop the skills, to continue to grow as a person, but then also fit within your team that by the way, has been working, um, in the NCAA when you weren't even here and not being greater than a team. So I think there's, uh, maybe two or three of us that actually went back to school and, and still got to compete a couple more years together and we won another national championship. But, um, in the back of my mind, you know, being on the national team with all these other women who are out of college, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, I want to go play pro. Like I want to go out to the East and do that. So that was sort of tickling in the back being like, okay, like I want to go pro. Cause I thought professional hockey was this other thing. And that was the next step naturally. Right. Cause the guys do it. So why wouldn't the women do it? Um, pro is very different than what I thought it was going to be. expert, a New York Times bestselling author, and a podcast host, as well as a mom, Gabrielle Reese. Gabrielle, welcome to my office. Thank you. You can just call me Gabby. Have you followed, have you seen just in the last week or so that the NCAA has allowed for the name, image, and likeness? Yeah, I did. Of course, I've been following that. And it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're talking about athletes where maybe their families don't have the opportunity to provide outside support even beyond what the athlete's able to get for the university. And, and sometimes that creates pretty difficult situations, I think, for the athletes. 
for me, people don't realize it is a job. It, and especially if you're talking about big universities, if you're talking about football and, and really any of these sports, these athletes, this is their job. So I really am glad to see that, that they've put that in place because ultimately it's just going to create a better environment for the athlete to focus on the things that they, they need to and want to and not maybe have to worry about certain other things. So Gabby, you had to make a decision uh, that predates name, image, and likeness that you had to have the confidence to think that I'm going to leave this volleyball career that has served me very well, and I'm going to go all in into the fashion world, into the editorial world. Where did that confidence come from? Did you always have it, or did you just trust that you would figure it out? Oh, I I didn't leave my college volleyball career I just paid to play so I was actually using my modeling money uh, to support myself fully and wholly for my last two seasons so I became a scholarship athlete who I paid to play and for me I, I just weighed out the pros and cons and I could make it a day what it would cost to pay for the year to go to school and it was an investment that I thought was worth the gamble was worth for me because I, I was really inside myself a volleyball player as far as in mentality and what I loved and what I was passionate about, but I understood the real opportunity in fashion and in modeling. And because I didn't have the support of my family, just that was the nature of the beast. I thought this would be a way I could sort of take care of everything. I understood that even, you know, the greatest volleyball players in the world, it's a small platform. So that creates this idea of I better pay attention and look around and see what other areas that are connected. Cause that's the other thing is, right. How do you get all efforts moving in the same direction? Not, well, I have this thing over here and that thing over there, because not only do you not maximize your time, it just sort of nothing happens. So that's why I started looking at television and even writing when I was very young, like, for example, I had a friend, Gilles Ben Simone, he's a very famous photographer who shot every cover of American L magazine. I started working with him when I was 18. When I was 22, I said, Gilles, I want to write a column. And so what I did was I did things that were an organic extension of what I was already doing, but that I was genuinely interested in. I thought I could do. And so maybe that was more it is seeing like, I know where all the limitations are, or I can feel there's a lot of them. How do I do things to expand the lane and the opportunity to communicate and expand the business? And so I think that's actually how I got the sort of notion about being an entrepreneur and being proactive. At the height of my athletic career, I had one other, maybe two other real careers simultaneously. I was parallel pathing the whole time because the other sneaky, weird part is Everybody wants to help you when it's kind of happening. And even the best players, with the exception of like just a couple, you know, like if you're LeBron James, you're someone's always going to be there to help you because you're LeBron James. But generally, when you come from smaller sports, it's utilizing the momentum and the relationships while you're actually in it. You know, I think they don't educate athletes enough to understand that's the best time to get help is sort of when people have the perception that you don't need it. I was always looking to be, it's weird. Like I'm a very linear thinking person in so many ways, but on this other side, I have a high level of creativity of what do I want to create? What's that going to look like? Cause I'm well aware that it's going to take five years to even have it look like something. So you better start now. So I think that I long before I was done competing, 
I was, um, you know, really into other things. And the other thing too, was there were times that I was perfectly willing to disassociate from my identity as an athlete, because the problem is, is it's not sustainable. Stepping into my office today is Michael Clinton. Michael, welcome to my office. Well, you know, first of all, we were a um, we were sort of a poor working class family. We were six kids, and my best friend actually was a guy named Dennis Miller, who you may know, the comedian who lived behind us. He had a family of five. We were a family of six. Dave Lewandowski, the football coach lived also down across the street. So we were saying maybe it was something in the water in that neighborhood that let us sort of propel our way forward. But it was, um, you know, Pittsburgh at the time was a, you know, we're a working class steel mill town. My dad was a laborer. My mother was a housewife. Not a lot of uh, money around, but, you know, they were fantastic. They were turned us on to art exhibits and culture and library and books and so, you know, it was a great way for me to think about what was out there. I'm the first person in my family to go to college and both sides of the family. And I went cross town to the University of Pittsburgh to study economics and political science. And while I was there, I said I loved I ended up being the head of the university newspaper. I said, I like this publishing thing. And how do I make a career out of this? And someone said, well, you got to go to New York. <laughs> so... $60 in my pocket and a couch to sleep on for a couple of months and no contacts. And I arrived and there wasn't a lot of takers in the beginning, you know, because I was, <laughs> I was new to the, uh, but I was a, you know, a young kid with, you know, ambition and, you know, all that stuff. And I kind of found my way. And so luck and timing and skill and all the above. And so I love to say to people, it doesn't matter where you come from, regardless of where you are in your life, you can always find a path whether you're 22 or 42 or 62. Well, Michael, you know that on this on this podcast and talking about topically, one of the things that I always find fascinating about people from all walks of life, whether we're talking to executives or high-performing athletes, whatever the case may be, other authors, the mechanics of, of high performance, of success and failure, and even what it takes to reach peak performance... What did you find, not only from your own personal success, but the teammates that you worked with? What were some of those things that you saw in people historically over the course of time that always served them well, regardless of change, regardless of uncertainty or even really catastrophic setbacks sometimes? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I think that you know, one of the things I would say is I always kept my Pittsburgh in me. When I was very young, I was a, I was the young publisher of GQ magazine, the youngest publisher in the industry at the time. And, you know, I, you can get a little full of yourself. And someone who was the elder statesman said, you have to remember one thing. It's the seat you sit in. It is not who you are. And that always stuck with me because people who get into leadership seats, C-suite seats, CEOs, anyone you can become uh, very caught up in it. You can begin thinking that that's who you are, but it's really a seat that you represent. That's why I think so many leaders have a problem when they leave their power seats because they haven't thought through, you know, who are they outside of that seat? So was there ever a point in time that you had a bit of a, um, let's call it a reckoning, where somebody maybe close to you 
kind of just tapped you on the shoulder or yanked you back a little bit and said, I, I don't know if nobody's told you this yet, but you're going down the wrong path right now. You're, you're turning into a bit of a jack wagon. <laughs> Maybe they didn't use those words exactly. Maybe it was a different word, but was there any, any kind of point of inflection where you realized, Ooh, I kind of went out on the, on the diving board a little too far on that one. Yeah. I think a great, um, a great way to frame that, that answer is the importance of having a mentor. You know, I think that you adopt your mentor in a certain way. You you end up adopting the person who's going to look out for you. And I had a, I've had a couple of really great mentors in my career. One in the early phase, and one in the later phase. They moved me along, but they also kept me on the straight and narrow. So you know, if I would, you know, sometimes when you're younger and you're 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 in a hurry, you may say things that you're not thinking through what you're saying. And my first mentor, Jack Klieger would pull me aside and say, you shouldn't approach it that way, or you shouldn't talk about it that way. Um, here's another way to go at it. And I think those, those mentors who are there to help you along, you know, I was, fortunately, I never went off the diving board. You know, I was on the board, but I never quite, you know, ju jumped off. They kind of yanked me back before I did. Um, so there, there was nothing um, cataclysmic, fortunately, that was, that was there that, it would have been a derailing of my own self. But I really, I, to this day, I still rely on those two mentors. The second one is a woman named Kathy Black, who you might know. Kathy was always one of the top women in business. Um, Kathy was an amazing, uh, one of the top uh, Fortune uh, 50 women in business, you know, on the board of Coca-Cola, Notre Dame. I mean, an amazing, amazing woman. And she was my, my mentor. We worked together for 12 years. And she really taught me how to really be a world-class leader and a world-class executive to look at things, you know, from the 30,000 feet level. So I owe a lot to her in that second part of my career. Mark Polymeropoulos, welcome to my office. Thanks so much. It's, it's a great honor to be here. I'm really excited for this discussion today. Thanks. Your life is a journey and your career is a journey. So I didn't leave CIA, but I did change jobs inside CIA. And so that's a really important point to do. But it was just something that, that I think I was better suited um, for a little bit of a, a, a different position. And, and I had the you know, courage is the wrong word, but I just, you know, I, I, I really wanted to, to make that jump. And, and I was I, and I did so. And I think I found much more success on the operations side than I would have if I had stayed as an analyst. Well, I push back just a little bit on framing courage as not being the right word, because especially when you're first starting out or when you're young, or even once you get a little bit further on in any career path, if you've found success or you've developed a level of comfort, it takes courage to take that next step. It takes courage to trust yourself enough to go ahead and jump, jump to the next adventure, jump to the next challenge and trust yourself and your and your curiosity and your willingness to not be good at something right to know well, that eventually you'll figure it out well look I, you know and and if, if, if the, the book is all about you know my leadership style but based on a lot of failure and adversity but along the same way you always have to dare to fail and so I would I would work with the the, the CI as we call it the PRB the the, the publication review board very mm -hmm. extensively because you know a lot of, you know, we just made sure you can't obviously have the identities of some of the the assets uh, in there or the location so I would say it's in the Middle East 
And a lot of these stories are about assets who, who tragically, some of them who have passed, or maybe they're not working for us anymore. So we really, you know, hid their identities. But I was really pleased with how much got into the book because, mm-hmm. you know, the war stories are, are so impactful because they make a point with each principle. And again, and, and a lot of it has to do with kind of the fundamentals that I talk about in the book, um, which, which has to do with overcoming adversity and with kind of the key trait that I talk about all the time is the need for humility. I love how you frame that this idea that, you know, it's okay for leaders to show vulnerability, right? We have to have that. And at the same time, we have to be extraordinarily mindful that as leaders, the way you react, the way you engage with your teammates, with your employees can also have really significant repercussions. I think people twist this up sometimes because there's, you know, so much little sparkly Instagram stuff out there of just be yourself, be authentic all the time. Well, when you're in a leadership position, that doesn't mean you get to be a jack wagon. And that doesn't mean that you get to explode just because you're angry about something. But you also shared a story about after you had spent some time, I'll call it in the rock tumbler, struggling, that you you kind of self-selected out for a second. So, 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 you know, winning Oscar, I mean, the idea is, you know, you really never have a day off or, or, or a minute mm-hmm. off as a leader. All eyes are going to be upon you all the time. So what you do matters. And, and I caveat that, as you said before, that doesn't mean you can't be empathetic at times. You can show vulnerability, but you just have to kind of explain to your team what's going on. You're going to be doing things with your family. You probably have other things that, the, you know, that, that you have to do. So you're not going to think about me every day. But you know what? I'm going to think about you every single day when we're back in there together. Because if you make one mistake, I'm going to die. and My whole family is going to die. Right. And that right. sense of responsibility was astounding to me as a, as, a, you know, as, a, as a junior operations officer. And I took that as a teaching point for all the officers I then managed kind of uh, you know, down the line. Because, again, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a personal relationship. It's a, you know, it is a relationship you have with another human being um, who you maybe have recruited uh, or maybe you took it over from another officer who did the recruitment, but ultimately this life, this person's life is in your hands. Pretty extraordinary. Stepping into my office this week is Dave Robinson. Dave, welcome to my office. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So when you look at all of those different various experiences, how do you think your military background prepared you to help prepare leaders in the corporate space now outside of the military? Well, one of the things, Carrie, that it, that it prepared, ways that it prepared me was um, just the example that, that I saw others set as a junior officer growing up. And, you know, I think we learn by seeing more than we learn by listening. And I, I had some great leaders that I was privileged to serve for and to, and to work with who really set the example. In fact, my book is dedicated to all the Marines I know who set the example. And Admittedly, many of them carried me on their shoulders. And so, you know, I learned so much about some of the, the basics of leadership, some of those blocking and tackling skills. I, I like to refer to it as being brilliant at the basics, uh, which is a great quote by uh, Vince Lombardi. Uh, and I know you're familiar as being from the Green Bay, Wisconsin area. So, you know, that's, that's uh, one of the things that I, that I love. But more importantly, I think it's putting those principles into practice. Uh, when I look back at some of the crucible moments in my military career, uh, as a commanding officer, just the number of decisions, uh, complex problems, uh, challenges, the amount of accountability that you have for lives of the people that you know serve in your command, as well as their families, and ultimate accountability for mission accomplishment. And that's what really honed my perspective on leadership, gave me a perspective about 
uh, how hard leadership is. And that's where my heart goes out to others in the private sector who are struggling with many of the same challenges and just hope that some of the things that I've learned in my journey can be helpful to them. Yeah, you shared a, a pretty colorful story that I think really underscores that point and, and what it's going to take and how we get back into the present moment so we don't panic. You're going to have to expand on this because I'm not going to get all the details right, but it was a story about when there was a large mob forming outside of a gate uh, on one of your bases and you were the one in charge and how you had to manage that feeling of panic if you will, and what was happening. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? So I, I, I use this story to illustrate that third C in, in the culture that I just talked about, and, and that's composure and how as leaders, you know, we, we really set the tone for how our team responds under, under, under adversity. I was uh, what was called a battle captain in the uh, Tactical Air Command Center in the Marine sector in Iraq, Western Iraq in 2006. And we had a geographic area about as large as twice as large really as my home state of South Carolina. So quite a large area to cover with medical evacuation missions and other close air support and some other air support activities. And one afternoon, uh, I was looking at the video feed from the drone overhead of our, our base and a large mob was forming outside the front gate. Then looking in the distance, I could see two white sedans a, a couple of miles away coming toward the, the front gate at high rates of speed on, on two dusty roads. And so almost immediately, we started getting mortar fire on the north sector of our base where a lot of our helicopters were parked. Almost immediately after that, you know, normally we had one troops in contact or firefight, you know, at a time at that particular point in 2006. We had six at once erupt throughout the entire battle space. And so now I've got a mob at the front gate. I've got two vehicles speeding toward the front gate. We're taking mortar fire uh, with all of it, where all the helicopters are parked. I've got people screaming for air support and medevac missions times six over the radio. This is one of those vulnerable moments. Uh, you know, I, I started to sense the urge to panic. And I had a flashback to three years earlier when I was sitting in a combat leadership lecture by uh, retired Lieutenant General Hal Moore. And he was uh, commanding officer uh, of, a, of a battalion in Vietnam. And there was a movie made about his book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Mel Gibson played uh, Hal Moore. Some of your audience may have read the book or may have seen the movie. Highly recommended. It's, it's, it's great. But I remember when General Moore said something to us. He said, if you, if you remember nothing about what I say today, remember this. There will come a time if you're in a combat leadership situation, I don't care how strong you think you are, when things will start going so wrong, lives will be on the line, that you physically and emotionally will start to sense the urge to panic. And when that happens, take a deep breath, remain calm, and do your best to make the most of the bad situation, because if you don't, it's only gonna get worse. Dr. Ethan Cross steps into my office this week. So I've been studying the voice in our head and how to manage it for about 20 years, but I've been thinking about it for close to 40. My interests really go back to when I was a little kid and I had this unconventional dad who archetype of the classic New Yorker, big bushy mustache, lots of like chain smoker, watch the Yankees, cursed everyone out on the road. But when he wasn't doing that, he was meditating, usually while he smoked, and, and talking to me as a little kid about Eastern philosophy and emotions and how to manage them. One of the first lessons I remember him teaching me was, when you're struggling with something, turn your attention inward, tap into that inner voice, find the, the you know, he'd call it the kernel of truth. It was very dramatic. 
And basically, like, go inside, introspect, come up with a solution for how to manage the situation and move on. And, you know, when I was a kid, three, five, seven, I listened to what my dad told me. I didn't really question it. And then when I got to college, I took my first psych class in uh, the second semester of my freshman year. And about halfway through the semester, we got to this topic that my dad and I had spent so much time talking about, which was technically called introspection. So what happens when you turn your attention inward to make sense of your problems? And, and what happens when you use language to do that, right? Like the, the inner voice in, in, in technical terms, it's about silently using language as a tool to manage your problems. And so when we got to that topic, what I learned is a lot of people, a lot of the time really benefited from this capacity, right? Being able to turn your attention inward. This is what lets us solve problems, work through the past, plan for the future, but Sometimes, particular high-stress situations that are filled with negative emotions, when we try to turn our attention over to make sense of our circumstances, it often backfires. It leads us to worry and ruminate and become mired in, in paralyzing distress. And so I found this to be a giant puzzle. Why is it that sometimes when we turn our attention over, we could capitalize on this tool? It serves us so well, but other times... It gets us into such trouble. And so I went to graduate school to figure out how to use science to figure out why that happens, why we sometimes stumble, and importantly, to also figure out how to use science to identify tools to help people manage their chatter. And, and that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about the co-rumination trap and what that can do to people and actually where the genesis is? Because I think it's one of those things where all of us, if you hear that and you understand what's happening when you're with a couple of friends or a group, or you're in a little online community or whatever the case may be, you're going to be able to quickly spot it and identify it and go, aha, <laughs> I know what's happening yeah. here now, instead of being swept away in the moment. And this is, this is a bit of science that um, like I personally have found so useful in my own life, both in the sense of how it influences who I seek out to help me when I'm struggling with something, and also how I provide help to others when they come to me. So co-rumination. So what we're talking about here is, so when you find yourself consumed with chatter, you're worrying or ruminating about something, which, you know, it doesn't matter if you're... Republican or Democrat, mm -hmm. liberal or conservative, like we all do it at times, right? So these are universal mm -hmm. issues. When that happens, a lot of research shows that people are intensely motivated to share their emotions with others, to talk about them. There are a couple of exceptions to this rule. Um, so we tend not to want to talk about experiences of shame and embarrassment or, or really significant traumas where we sometimes try to avoid talking about that. But for everything else, anxiety and depression and anger, we are very motivated to share. And that's true of both men and women, actually. There's a stereotype that men like to just keep it all bottled up inside. Women like to just talk, talk, talk. The, the data don't support that. So both men and women like to share. All right. So, well, you find someone to talk to. So what do you say, right? There's a lot of ways to talk about our negative experiences. And one message that we've gotten from our culture, our, our you know, our the, the news, our, our parents, our friends over the years is that it's really important to vent your emotions. When you're upset, just get it out, find someone to just unload to. The research shows that venting in that way 
that can be really good for strengthening the friendship bonds between two people. So if I know that you and I now, we connect over Big Ten football and other other the, the, the glories of the Midwest, I can call you up and I know you're willing to listen to me. It feels really good to know that there's someone out there who cares enough about me that they're willing to take the time to empathically connect and validate how I feel. But if all we do is talk about what happened to me and how awful I felt and you validate, oh my God, Ethan, I can't believe that son of a bleep said that. And we we engage in, in what we call in technical terms this co-rumination session where we're ruminating together about this problem. I feel really great about our friendship, but I leave that conversation just as upset, sometimes even more upset as when I started talking to you because all those negative feelings are just bubbled up to the forefront. What the best conversations do when it comes to helping us manage our chatter is they help us do two things. First, they do help us. We we do have to share what we're feeling to a certain degree. Like if I'm coming to you for support, it's important that you understand what I'm going through and validate you know, my experience. But at a certain point in the conversation, what you ideally want to do is help me take a step back and see that bigger picture. You want to try to help me reframe that experience in a way that ultimately lets me resolve it and move on with my life, right? Because if I don't resolve the experience, it's going to keep on bubbling up to bother me. And that's that's the signature to providing really good chatter support. It's that two-step process of first validating and listening And then, at the appropriate time, helping that other person reframe the event. Adrienne Bankert steps into my office this week. How did you realize that kindness is a superpower? Well, it's interesting because now that I'm where I am in my career today, if I look back and I think about the hallmarks in my life, the, the moments where it made no sense... Uh, maybe to be so intentional about kindness. Now I understand. It's like, aha, my eyes are opened. I just recently had a conversation with someone in the business and they actually were saying how years ago when they were much younger, they were a superstar. Their career was rocketing and they were a real jerk and um, they were mean and they played politics and they played the game And years later, all these years later, they can look back. They had people in their life who loved them enough to tell them the truth that they were being a jerk. And they changed their ways. They had some kids. They feel bad about the person that they were at the beginning. And I I said to them, I said, do you forgive yourself? And they said, well, I mean, I feel bad. And I said, well, you feeling bad isn't going to help anything. I said, you're not the same person anymore. You've grown up. You know, you've matured. And uh, they said, thank you for saying that. I think that... um, the first person that gets credit for the book is my mentor who wrote the foreword, who told me that I should write a book on kindness. Then I can just look back and see that it was in a plan, like a covert plan to bring out the best me. And um, I think no matter what industry you're in, you can become one of two things. You know, you can become uh, this person who wants to win at all costs mm-hmm. and you can be, or you can become somebody who's really ambitious, but also very uh, present and engaged with people and engaged with relationships and knows the collateral of relationships isn't just transactional. I've never applied for one job I've ever had. Never once have I submitted an application to get a job. I have always been referred or somebody called me and that's remarkable. 
again, I've submitted things. I've submitted myself for different things, but the jobs that I've had where I booked them were a result of people knowing me, my reputation, or people giving me a big break in the very, very beginning. And so that particular boss was referred to me by a woman who'd known me my whole career. This woman had never met me before. She'd never seen me in person. She called me up and she said, looking at your resume, you don't have enough experience uh, for what I want to do, but I can teach you how to be a better reporter. I can teach you how to be a better writer, but I can't teach nice. And we need more of that in our business. And so she gave me the shot based on what another person said about me. What role do you think failure actually had in that journey? Failure makes your life interesting. I always tell people like you dread mistakes and I still don't particularly like making them. But what I've learned is it makes your life look so much more exciting than it would be if you did everything perfect. If you do everything perfect and you have no bumps in the road, do you want to watch a movie where the heroine or the hero is always perfect and always doing Mm -hmm. everything? I mean, even James Bond, which I've never seen a full James Bond movie, don't judge. Um, But I've never seen a full James Bond movie in its entirety. But I know that he goes through times when he gets knocked around and his car gets blown up or shot at and he recovers. And it's the excitement of the recovery. For me, um, I'll tell you what, one thing that was easy. It was easy to jump from local market to local market. There was no real hardship when I was working in my hometown. It was I was around people who knew me. I worked morning and night, which was very hard. I was late for my first Mm -hmm. time on air because I overslept for my second shift because it was every morning and every night. It was like 2.30 AM till nine or like four to nine. And then I want to say it was like three to nine and then like 4.30 to 6.30 PM. It was just a crazy shift, weird for two years. That was hard. (laughs) That was not easy, but knowing, having the confidence to go from Sacramento to Dallas to Los Angeles, that was not hard to wrap my brain around. But to go from local news to the national level was like jumping over the Atlantic Ocean. And it's a whole nother world and it's a whole nother level of, of challenge. And very few people attain it. And when, right. you, when right. you do, you know, it's, it's remarkable and it's, um, it's fantastic. But I never worked so hard. I've never stretched myself. I've never dealt with so much change. Molly Fletcher, welcome to my office. It's great to be with you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. What are some of the common characteristics that you found that both athletes and coaches that you've represented, what they have that they've been able to sustain high performance? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, at the highest level, the most interesting thing is that they wake up every day and try to get better, right? That you, you know, you would think athletes and coaches spend a lot of time and energy worried about winning, worried about competing, worried about the other person, worried about the other guy, gal, whatever it was. But what they really spend a lot of time doing is saying, how do I get better? Right? Like, how do I get better? And at the highest level, that is threaded through the best of the best, right? Not the people that are out on tour, but the ones that are winning championships, you know, not the guys that get drafted, but the ones that go to the hall of fame. Are there a few people that come to mind specifically when it comes to this idea of resilience or overcoming adversity, how they make it through that dip or maybe a really challenging incident? Sure. I mean, you know, I I, I remember I had Billy Horschel on my podcast and he, you know, he told me, he said, Molly, you know, when Tiger was playing, he said, we all wanted to walk practice rounds with Tiger because gosh, I mean, the opportunity to play on a Monday or Tuesday to warm up for a tournament that starts on Thursday with Tiger was pretty special. 
So guys would always love to do that. And Tiger would always get out at seven in the morning, right? Before everybody, anybody was out there and he wasn't bothered. And, you know, they play a practice round two and a half hours. And, you know, Billy said he was walking with Tiger and he said, Hey man, look, you know, when I'm preparing for a tournament, this is what I do. He said, you know, I lay in bed, you know, on Wednesday night and I play the whole thing out in my head. You know, I play out Thursday's round. I shoot a 64. I drain every putt. You know, I'm in the fairway in regulation. Like I crush it. Do the same thing Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I, you know, drain a putt and hold a trophy over my head and I win the tournament. And Tiger goes, dude, that's awesome. He said, but do me a favor. He said, visualize yourself having to get up and down to make the cut. Visualize yourself off the rough in the fairway on one when you tee it up to start on Thursday. Visualize yourself in a trap and you got to get up and down to win it. He said, visualize yourself in tough moments and then visualize yourself recovering from those moments. And I think that's what the best do. They, they absolutely believe and visualize themselves inside of the moments that they've worked so hard for. But the best ones also visualize mentally, physically, emotionally, their ability to recover from the tough moments. And, and the more that they do that, the better they get, right? Like for, for me as an agent, I watched all of these athletes and coaches all in all the little moments, right? In the, mm-hmm. on their way to practice, struggling, you know, working through an injury, dealing with a trade, getting, thinking they're getting fired, thinking they're getting released, losing their equipment on the way to a tournament. I mean, just, I saw all the little moments, but then I would see them the next day step out on the mound or the course or the court and crush it. And not always, but generally, right? That's why they're there. And what they did so well and do so well is they, they send themselves the right messages inside of these tough moments. And, and they tell themselves that they can do it. They're fearless at some level, right, Carrie, in the little moments. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and those little moments turn into big moments. I mean, you probably sat in a lot of simulators and had to execute, right? And then you got out and did it for real with a, you know, with a multi-million dollar piece of equipment and did it. And so when you do it, the more and more you did it in the sim, I bet the better you got when it was, when it was real. Right. And so I saw that with great athletes, the more they'd stand over those putts and get nervous on Tuesday or Wednesday or at the practice moments, the, the stronger they were, you know, when it, when it was Thursday, Friday, and they were playing for a million bucks. So when, when you were representing different athletes, did you ever see, or, or was there ever a time where, and you don't have to drop a name as far as this is concerned, with an athlete that should have been a top performer, but maybe because they had an inner self-talker or that, that inner chatter just was a demon they just couldn't overcome? Sure. I mean, I had, you know, I mean, you know, 50% of first round guys don't make it to the big leagues, only 50% Mm -hmm. make it. Right. And then as they get, you know, deeper in the draft, I mean, less and less make it. And I mean, these are people that are really talented, right? They're the best kids on their high school team. They're the best, some of the best kids in their town. So why don't they make it? I mean, I believe, yes, it's a lot of things, right? It's self-talk, but at the end of the day, talent just isn't enough. You know, you need talent plus drive. You need talent plus recovery. You need talent plus mindset. I mean, you need all these things in addition to talent. Talent can get you there, but it won't keep you there. Dory Clark, welcome to my office. Gary, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. How do you now define long-term success 
you know, a decade and a half after you sat around at the table wondering, gosh, how did, how did these people do it? So how do you define long-term career success now? Well, I think my definition hasn't necessarily changed. I define long-term career success essentially is just self-actualization. I mean, I think it's different for everyone, but to me, it's a, it's a question of how do we make sure there is no daylight or at least as little daylight as possible between what you aspire to for yourself and what you're actually able to accomplish. I would like to help people be able to figure out how to close that gap because there's plenty of people with aspirations. Um, we know that not everyone is able to achieve them, but I'd love to see more people doing it. And what I realized in the course of researching the long game is that there's some other things happening too. Uh, some interesting research out of Columbia Business School showed from Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues showed that actually part of what's going on is that it's a status game. That in Western culture, especially American culture, busyness has become a way that we telegraph our worth mm -hmm. to other people. And so if we actually were to make the, tr the changes necessary to turn our lives more in the direction of what we claim we want, that may actually open up uncomfortable questions about whether we're actually as essential as we thought we were or, or you know, what if other people think we're not that important? And you begin to realize, oh, this is a multi-layered problem here. Well, and it's, it's fascinating because you do, I love how you sprinkle research throughout your book as well. And that when we know that, and when we think about, you know, anytime you pick up a newspaper or you go to a conference and, and any company right now, you will hear saying, and especially moving through a pandemic period, we have to be innovative. We have to be creative. And yet we know scientifically and all the surveys show us the only way you can be innovative the only way you can be creative is, first of all, if you trust people enough that if they fail, that you're not going to shove them off the cliff, right? Like that's a big thing, that they have the psychological and even physical safety to take that take that leap of faith. But, but also combined with, you have to have the white space. You have to have the space to actually do the thinking, to come up with the idea that's innovative. And that's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> so you asked Carrie about strategic patience, which is a concept I talk about in the long game. And the reason that I devoted some ink to it and wanted to share about it is, frankly, patience has never been my strong suit. Uh, it is not my favorite thing at all. But I came to realize, you know, as I thought more and more and spent more, more and more time focused around long-term thinking, that you know, inevitably there are some things that just do take a long time. We don't want them to, but they do. And if we want to face reality and not be these kind of magical thinkers, we have to get with the program. But the problem I've always had with patience, you know, oh, just be patient. People love to say that. To me, that sounds really not dissimilar to shut up, stop mm -hmm. agitating, just sit back and good things will happen. And to me, that doesn't actually sound like a reassurance. That sounds like placation. That sounds mm -hmm. like somebody just saying, uh, uh, you know, quiet mm -hmm. down, get off my back. And that's, that's not something that is really tenable for me. <laughs> I will have a person who likes to make things happen. And so for me, my definition of strategic patience is, you know, holding multiple realities at one time, which is number one, yes, it's true. It might take a while. Okay. We've made our peace with that. Number two, 
we certainly don't need to make it take longer than it has to. And we are going to do what we can to try to be smart about it and to expedite it. And that means formulating a hypothesis, working toward that hypothesis, testing it, pivoting where we need to, and all the while understanding, okay, you know, this might not work, the next thing might not work, but something is going to work. And we are going to get closer and closer to that with the, the data that we accumulate. Carla Harris, welcome to my office. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Well, Carla, as you know, we talk about the uh, mechanics of success and failure and high performance and what that looks like on this podcast. And I've heard you say before that if you consider yourself a leader in the 21st century, mm -hmm. you must be comfortable taking risks, which of mm -hmm. course is right in my wheelhouse. When did you first recognize that evolution, if you will, or that as being really a foundational element of solid leadership? Yes, I'll tell you easily, uh, Carrie, uh, over a decade, I probably said a decade and a half ago, if not two, as I started really paying attention to those who were in the leadership seat and the decisions that they were making and some that worked out well and some that didn't. But the point is what was consistent as I looked across people that I considered to be strong leaders, great leaders, exceptional leaders, they all were willing to take those risks. They all were willing to make decisions with imperfect information, and in some cases with no information, but knowing instinctively or clearly factually that something needed to be done. So I knew that you know you really couldn't afford to play it safe if you wanted to be a great leader. Right, which also is going to take, in addition to that, this isn't about taking reckless risks, mm -hmm. having the courage, having the courage to step up and step into that space of discomfort or uncertainty even. Yes, that's exactly right. There's no question that I give a talk, as you probably know, Carrie, on intentional leadership. I call them the pearls of intentional leadership. And at the end, I always say, while well, I've given you the pearls, the strand that holds all the pearls together happens to be courage because it takes courage to do each one of those pearls that I talk about in the talk. And it's no question that stepping into unknown territory takes courage. But I would argue that if you've gotten to that point where you have to make that decision, then you have to understand and embrace that you have been prepared for that moment, either through concrete experiences or through things that you've learned in, a, in an academic or other kind of learning environment. And, and, and the last piece, is the courage to do the thing, whatever it is. Right. It's the glue. It's the yeah. glue that holds everything together. No I think what also is a predecessor to that, if you will, though, is that you also have to have the ability to make the ask, which is something I've heard you talk about. Uh, and if you could expand on that a little bit, because I think what what we see too often is people have this idea or they want to make the ask but they don't do it. They don't yes. take that action. Yes. And I find the greatest trepidation, Carrie, in making the ask happens when it's for your own person. I have heard many, many leaders say, oh, I don't have any problem asking for anybody else. Um, but when it comes down to them and asking for what they are due or what they should get paid or for that promotion or for that opportunity to lead, that's when there is the trepidation. So I, I tell people all the time that if, if that's the case, step out of the situation. Look at it objectively as if you are doing it for someone else until you can make the ask, because in effect, 
you are doing it for someone else. If you can get to that seat of leadership, if you have the ultimate authority, if you're getting rewarded accordingly, all of that's going to feed down. There's going to be a multiplier effect. And if it's not down, it's around you. So think of it as your enabling your ability to empower somebody else or to make decisions powerfully on behalf of somebody else. But you got to start with you. And I tell people all the time, and you know, Carrie, I speak about this as, as often as I can about the fact that there is no meritocracy, because whenever there is a human element in the evaluative equation, by definition, you've just inserted some subjectivity, which queers 100 percent meritocracy. So I'm very clear that it's more than your performance, that it's also the relationships that you have. Mm -hmm. And especially as you get more senior, right? While in the early days of your career, you could argue that there's a larger measure of objectivity. Either you put points on the board or you didn't, either you got it right or you didn't. But as you get more senior, then there is an assumption of equity. And as I like to say, you know as well as I do that that assumption of equity is flawed because Carrie is not Joe is not Carla, but they say, oh, they're all pretty good. Well, when that happens, then that gives leverage to the person that has the better relationships in the room where decisions are being made, in that room where you are not present. And all of the critical decisions about your career are made in a room where you are not present. Your compensation, your promotions, the assignments that you receive, all in a room where you are not present. So somebody has to carry your paper, as I like to call it. Somebody needs to be the sponsor. Hey, thank you so much for joining me in my office. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get the new shows when they drop. And while you're at it, I would love to hear from you personally on my social channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And of course, you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. But share with me your favorite takeaways and even what you would like to hear more of next season. I'm grateful you're sharing your time with me. If you've been interested in maybe another resource or some more opportunities to delve a little bit deeper, don't forget to grab your copy of my new book, Span of Control. It's on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target, Barnes & Noble. And of course, you can always ask your favorite indie bookstore for a copy. But I know that it's going to be extraordinarily helpful to you on a personal level. Uh, it could help a family member maybe struggling or looking to take it to the next level, and even your friends and your teammates to help them or yourself identify your opportunities, focus on what matters most, and find success even during times of chaos and a lot of uncertainty and change. You can also visit my website, carrylorenz.com for more valuable tools and resources that you can download immediately. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.